Well, good morning. You may have noticed, by looking around, Americans are a very unhealthy people. Something that shouldn't shock most of us. We've become increasingly sedentary and unfit. And by many metrics, a large percentage of Americans are physically unhealthy, metabolically unfit. And this is in large part due to our diet. We have a very poor diet. The American diet is, as many people have joked, indeed SAD. S-A-D, standing as an acronym for the standard American diet. What Americans eat in private, we wear out to the world in public. And unfortunately, our poor eating habits, they're not just limited to the realm of the body. The same things can be said about the realm of the mind, the realm of the intellect, the life of our interior. We have, whether knowingly or not, we've been gorging ourselves from some time on the buffet of enlightenment ideology. We like that food. We have drank the sugary syrup of deism, that idea that God is distant and far away. And because of that, we've become increasingly intellectually impotent and unimaginative. We've been fattening ourselves for years on the processed carbohydrates of demystified materialism. Now, those are big fancy words there. Demystified materialism is just to say that we somehow are walking around with the idea that the world is nothing but matter. And if the world is nothing but matter, there is no mystery. So we've ate this diet of demystified materialism. The Enlightenment mindset, like the junk food we so often consume, it lures us in with bright colors and the sweet scents. But instead of the smells and aroma of grease and sugar, they lure us in with the sense of certainty. Come over here and you can eventually know everything. You can know everything with mathematical certainty with clarity, with precision. There are no secrets hidden in the earth that we won't be able to decode, to solve, to find out. Taste the sugary sweetness of omniscience. You can be like God. But just like the fast food that we eat, having lured us in and eaten these ideas, these enlightenment ideas, we are left less than healthy. And we're left less than satisfied. And we're actually left more prone to craving and eating more of the same garbage that left us in the same place. You guys probably understand that with your eating habits, right? You eat a bunch of garbage, and then you crave more garbage. That's what we've done with the life of our mind as well. So I would argue this morning that our diet needs to be reshaped. The failed enlightenment mythos must be replaced with a return to the reformed spiritual nutrition plan. That being the doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our chief and final authority. And we must start allowing it to shape us and shape the way that we encounter reality. And Scripture is quite clear that this reality that you and I are moving through is absolutely teeming with mysteries. There is no demystified materialism in Scripture. Scripture is abundantly luminous in regards to the fact that each and every moment is pregnant with the perplexity and the inscrutability of the divine. And we need our eyes readjusted. Because if we profess that all things stem from God, a God who is triune, the mystery beyond all mysteries, we might think that the things that he has created are indeed quite mysterious. 
everything stems from a triune God, his created order will be quite mysterious. And we need to become comfortable then resting in mysteries, resting in uncertainties. We need vision, I would argue, that has been sacramentally readjusted so as to be able to absorb and bask in the wonders of the multiplicity of ways that God communicates his very real presence to us. He's not a deistic God, but he communicates his very real presence to us. And scripture is very clear that our God who is immaterial, who is bodiless, who is pure spirit, pure being himself, that that God, he often communicates himself via bodies. He makes himself known in physical ways and by physical mediums. I mean, after all, think about the fundamental thing that stands at the heart of our religion. God unveiling himself takes place by the eternal son becoming incarnate, by taking on flesh. So we must remember, the whole created order was made by God, is at this very second upheld by God, and is meant in its entirety, to be praising God. And in that sense, in that sense alone, we must say that all of the created order then is in a sacramental relationship to God. But our enlightenment diet, it's bloated us to the point where we can't quite see this. We can't see that all things exist in a sacramental relationship to God. We no longer even have a sacramental view of the sacraments. And if we don't have a sacramental view of the sacraments, how are we going to have a sacramental view of the rest of our life? So today, by looking at our text, primarily Genesis chapter 14 and John chapter 6, my task is to set us on a road to recovering a more mystical, sacramental view of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as the fundamental starting point for a reimagining of all of reality. I'm going to repeat that because that's a big task. This is my task today. I want us to recover a sacramental view of the sacrament so that through that, we might have a more sacramental view of all of reality. And we're going to approach our text this morning under three headings. First, a God of physical gifts. Second, a God of things seen and things unseen. And third, a reaction to this God. So first, a God of physical gifts. A God of physical gifts. There are many things that we have to thank the Reformed Christian world for. But what of, if not the crowning achievement of Reformed Christianity, has been its emphasis on the covenantal structure of Scripture. The covenantal structure of Scripture. The God of the Bible is a God whose very means of self-revelation is covenantal. God reveals himself by way of his covenant. He acts in history for the sake of his covenant. He is a covenantal being. And Reformed Christianity, Reformed theology, has always stressed and shown that the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament, they exhibit a deep unity, a uniformity in regards to the God of covenants. That is to say something like this. Our God is not a God that somehow reroutes or changes his plans between Malachi and Matthew. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. And if we ask ourselves, and we look closely at the text of Scripture, well, how is it that God interacts with his people? Well, in many instances, this God who does not change 
he interacts with his people through physical mediums, through corporal conduits. Now, you and I might not like this. The world of demystified materialism might not like this. It might seem too earthy for us, too unsophisticated. But, alas, God's ways aren't your ways. In our text today, in Genesis chapter 14, we're going to see this all-important pattern. A pattern that will be repeated throughout Scripture. And this is the pattern that we see in Genesis chapter 14. The high priest comes to us. He meets us in our physical space. And then he conveys the restorative gift of his own presence through physical means, particularly through bread and wine. The high priest meets us in our physical space, and then he gives us the restorative gift that is his own presence through physical mediums, through bread and wine. In Genesis chapter 14, we get that all-important account of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, that shadowy figure, that almost mystical priest king, that guy who floats in and out of the scriptural narrative only appearing three times. He shows up in Genesis chapter 14. He shows up in Psalm 110. And then he shows up over and over again throughout the book of Hebrews. Only three times does he show up, Melchizedek. But each time Melchizedek shows up, it is like a lightning strike. He shows up at moments of heightened importance. He steps on the stage and he immediately takes the role of lead actor in the biblical drama. There's no mistaking who's in charge when Melchizedek shows up. Melchizedek, when he shows up in scripture, it would be like Al Pacino showing up for three seemingly random lines in your school's middle school play, your child's middle school play. He might only have three lines, but everyone after the play, that's all they're going to be talking about. They'll be sitting there and be like, what what was Michael Corleone doing here? What, What was that about? Nobody would be saying, oh, he only showed up for three lines. Let's not talk about it. I mean, think of the three times that Melchizedek shows up. He shows up in Genesis chapter 14, and he has a position of greater authority than Abraham, the father of God's covenantal promises. Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, not the other way around. That's a pretty important moment. Then he shows up in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament, the most Quoted part of the Old Testament in the New Testament in general. Psalm 110, that great Trinitarian psalm that starts off, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. Right, That weird psalm where David is saying, The Lord, the Father, says to my Lord, the Son. David is getting to eavesdrop on an inter-Trinitarian conversation. He's getting to listen in to the eternal counsel of God. The father talking to the son. And in that conversation, what does David hear? He hears the father telling the son that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That seems pretty important. And then finally, the third time Melchizedek shows up, he shows up in the book of Hebrews over and over again, where the author of Hebrews is trying to convince the Jewish population, the Jewish Christians, not to turn back to their old ways because this Christ that they proclaim is a priest not after the order of Aaron, not after the order of the Levites, but after the order of Melchizedek. I mean, those are three show-stealing scenes in the biblical drama. Melchizedek is a big figure. And our show-stopping actor, well, he's got a movie star name, a name absolutely fertile with meaning. 
Melchizedek. Melki means king. And Zedek means righteousness. And we are told that Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, is from the land of Salem, the land that would later be called Jerusalem. And we know Salem means peace. So here steps Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, from the land of peace. If we have our biblical eyes attuned and we hear that, we're like, hmm, that guy's probably important. A king of righteousness from the land of peace. So here in Genesis 14, burst onto the scene, the king of righteousness from the land of peace. And he jumps right into the middle of this Abrahamic narrative with no origin story. He's got no family history. Almost as if you were eternally begotten. Almost as if you were beyond temporal origin. So he shows up. And he shows up at a very important moment in Genesis chapter 14. Abram is just returning from war. He's returning with the plunder he had taken from the king of Sodom. So he's been away at war. He's war weary. And there stands Melchizedek. And our text says, starting in verse 18, Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I mean, what an incredible scene. We see Melchizedek here acting as a priest king as he receives Abraham and his guests into his presence. And then what does he do? He breaks bread. He pours wine and then gives them a benediction. Breaks bread, pours wine, gives them a benediction. Melchizedek blesses Abraham with a pre-incarnational Eucharist. That's what's going on in Genesis 14. He gives him the Lord's Supper in advance. Melchizedek gives Abraham, the father of God's covenantal promises, the Lord's Supper before it was instituted by our Lord. He then blesses Abram with physical gifts of bread and wine. And it is through and in the presence of these physical gifts that Abram receives what? The blessing. It is through and in the presence of the physical gifts that Abram receives the blessing. And I think it's important to note Abraham's posture here, or Abram at this point, his posture here. I think it's all important. His hand is outstretched, and he receives from his host, the priest king, this gift of intimate communion, table fellowship with the priest king. To reject the bread and wine would be to reject the priest king, and that means it would be to reject the benediction and the good word, the blessing. You can't reject the blessing. You can't reject the food and receive the blessing. I think it's also important to note that Melchizedek's offering, when does it show up? When does he show up with it? He shows up with it after Abram's been away at war. He and his men would be tired. They'd be destitute. They'd be longing for sustenance. They would be war-weary. A physical meal for a physical people with a physical blessing that helps the war-weary. Isn't that what that table is? Isn't that table for us a war-weary, a pilgrim people who need the sustenance 
after our battles? So this God, who does not change, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he loved the Jews, and he mediated his presence to them through physical means. So are we to think that for some reason, he does not do that for us today? Has God given us nothing in possession, all only in promise? Has he given us nothing for our hands and for our eyes? Nothing for these tired bodies that we carry around with us all week? Only given us things for our souls? John Henry Newman, speaking of this, wrote, It's not likely that God would reverse course in this instance and make the law superior to the gospel. No, the law is not superior to the gospel. Indeed, the opposite is true. Every physical passage that was promised to Israel is seen by us only in a higher sense, a greater sense. You and I, we are not fed with milk and honey. We are not fed with manna. But we dine in the courts of the king in a unique way of mystic sweet communion as we are able to feed on the body and blood of God incarnate. And that brings us to our second point. Things seen and things unseen. Things seen and things unseen. So, when Abram met Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14 and went to bless him, we see that he brings bread and wine. And the pattern has been set that we are going to arrive at the possession of invisible gifts by participation in visible gifts. There is some mysterious connection between what is seen and what is not seen. There is no demystified materialism at that table. I mean, take a second and listen to what Paul says. What is Paul's view of the relationship between what is seen and what is not seen? Paul says that the pagans, the idolaters, that they can commune with demons through physical mediums. Did you catch that in our, in our New Testament lesson? Paul thinks that the idolaters, that they commune with demons through physical means, mediums. How much more so can we commune with the God of the universe through physical mediums? I mean, if you don't believe me, listen to Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, No, I imply that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You see, we have a physical world. And God can and does. Indeed, he promises to communicate his spiritual blessings through physical means. You see, these religious things that we do here, they're not trite ceremonies. Nor are they strictly just memorials of something that has happened. There's something more going on here. Evelyn Waugh, in his majestic novel, Brideshead Revisited, he really understood this. That these things that we do, these sacraments are more than physical niceties. That novel, Brideshead Revisited, it's a chanting story of faith lost and faith restored. It's a novel about agnosticism. Catholicism and atheism, and the mystery of the way that God interacts in the lives of his people. 
The main character of the story is a man by the name of Charles, Charles Ryder. And Charles is an atheist. He's never believed. And he has this passionate, romantic love affair with this wonderful woman, Julia. And you're longing for them to get together. They're perfect for one another. And Julia is a lapsed Catholic. At the end of the novel, we see Charles and Julia together at the deathbed of Julia's father. Julia's father, Lord Marchman, has fully renounced the faith. He was a Catholic, and he turned away from it. And Charles and Julia, they're arguing about whether or not they should call a priest in to perform and give him the sacraments in his last moments on earth. And Charles is furious that Julia would even consider doing such a thing. All this nonsensical, religious, hocus-pocus stuff. None of that can matter at all. Don't do that. Well, after much arguing, alas, Julia wins out. It is her father after all. And even though he's a lapsed Catholic, fully renounced Catholic, and she's a lapsed Catholic, they call in the priest, and Charles is ticked off. Wall writes, the priest came to the foot of the bed. The doctor, the nurse, and I stood behind them. Now, said the priest, he's talking to the dying man. I know you are sorry for all the sins of your life, aren't you? Make a sign if you can. You're sorry, aren't you? But there was no sign. Try and remember your sins. Tell God you are sorry. I'm going to give you absolution. While I'm giving it, tell God you are sorry you've offended him. He began to speak in Latin. I recognized the words. Ego te absolvo in nomine patris. I absolve you in the name of the Father. And saw the priest make the sign of the cross. Then I knelt too and prayed. Oh God, if there is such a God. Forgive him his sins, if there is such a thing as sin. And the man on the bed opened his eyes and gave a sigh. The sort of sigh I had imagined people made at the moment of death. But his eyes moved so that we knew that there was still life in him. I suddenly felt the longing for a sign. If only of courtesy. If only for the sake of the woman I loved, who knelt in front of me praying I knew for a sign. It seemed so small a thing that was asked. The bare acknowledgement of a present, a nod in the crowd. I prayed more simply, God, forgive him his sins. And please, God, make him accept your forgiveness. So small a thing to ask. The priest took the little silver box from his pocket, spoke again in Latin, touching the dying man with an oil wad. He finished what he had to do, put away the box, and gave the final blessing. Suddenly, Lord Marchman moved his hand to his forehead I thought he had felt the touch of the chrism and was wiping it away. Oh, God, I pray, don't let him do that. But there was no need for fear. The hand moved slowly down his breast, then to his shoulder, and Lord Marchman made the sign of the cross. Then I knew that the sign I had asked for was not a little thing, not a passing nod of recognition. And a phrase came back to me from my childhood of the veil of the temple being rent from top to bottom. And that's writing right there. Once Charles sees the old man, Lord Marchman, anointed on his forehead with the oil, Charles is worried that Lord Marchman is about to obstinately wipe away the chrism oil in a sort of final rejection of the church and all of its signs and all of its symbol and all of its hocus pocus. Instead, with his very last ounce of strength, Lord Marchman makes the sign of the cross. And that moment of grace will end up bringing Julia back to her faith. And it will bring Charles to it for the first time. 
as he embraces what he calls prayers ancient and newly learned. That powerful exhibition of grace, immaterial grace received through physical means, sets their conversions in motion. Now, it need not be asked, but I'll ask it anyways. Is God bound by these physical mediums, by the sacraments? Is God bound by baptism and the Lord's Supper? No, of course not. We don't want to box God in. He's not bound by the means of grace. But you and I are. The Reformed Church has often used that language, what we call the ordinary means of grace. That is to say, the places where God has promised to ordinarily dispense his grace, where Christ is to be met. And there are three ordinary means of grace that the Reformed Church has always emphasized. The priest word, prayer, and the sacraments. That is where God has promised to meet you. Why would we look anywhere else? I mean, think of our father Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, that's that famous scene where Jacob encounters the angels ascending and descending that ladder, the ladder to heaven, the ladder between things unseen and things seen. God met Jacob there in a powerful and profound way. And what does Jacob do? He establishes a house of worship, Bethel. And this is what Jacob says in Genesis 28, verse 17, a remarkable verse. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The gate of heaven. The physical church, with its physical signs and seals of the invisible word of God, it is the gateway of heaven. This is where God's grace is dispensed. So why look for it anywhere else? We all long for grace. Come to the places where God has promised to give it. It's through the physical body that we enter the spiritual body. This place here, beloved, this is the waiting room for glory. God's primary means of communication. It is through the physical. He makes himself known in the flesh. And that should tell us something about our corporate worship then. If he communicates through the physical, our corporate worship of this God ought to be physical. It ought to involve touch and sense and sight and smells. And if one can help it, it ought not to be online. After all, you can't receive the Lord's Supper online. And it is at the supper that Christ tells us, look for a miracle. He tells us to look for a miracle there. I mean, listen to these words from John chapter 6. And I'll set the scene here. This is immediately after Jesus has just miraculously broken bread and fed 5,000. If we hear a story about Jesus breaking bread and feeding all the people, we should think, hmm, there's probably a Eucharistic connection here. He's breaking bread and feeding 5,000. Immediately after that, this is what happens. John 6, starting in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea... They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly. Always scary words to hear from Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Did you catch what Jesus just did there? Listen to the end of that. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus rebukes them for not receiving the food, the broken bread, as a miracle, but by only viewing it as a means of filling their guts. I mean, normally Jesus chastises those that are just coming to him looking for a sign or looking for a miracle. But when it comes to this, when it comes to his table, he says, look for a miracle here. The multitudes here in John chapter 6, the ones that have just been fed with the bread of life, they're foolishly reenacting the account of those wandering in the wilderness. Those that were given bread from heaven, but they stopped seeing it as a miracle. They stopped seeing it as a miracle of God's divine presence. They stopped seeing it as God with them and God for them. And that's what's happening here in John 6 as well. You see, our God is a God of breathtaking love. Just breathtaking love. And there is no place in the Christian life where the costly, world-redeeming love of God is more clearly and openly on display than at that table. The denigration of that table is an attack on love. To destroy the beautifully moving gift of God's presence in the sacrament, that is to chisel at the earthly foundations of love itself. The great English novelist Graham Greene, to quote a second great English novelist today, he understood this, and he understood it in a big way. In his novel, The End of the Affair, he writes this about Satan and his works. So Greene is writing about Satan and the satanic works. He says... I can imagine that if there existed a God who loved, the devil would be driven to destroy even the weakest, the most faulty imitation of that love. Wouldn't he be afraid that the habit of love might grow? And wouldn't he try to trap us all into being traitors, into helping him extinguish love? If there is a God who uses us and makes his saints out of such material as we are, the devil too may have his ambitions. He may dream of even training such a person as myself into being his saint, ready with borrowed fanaticism to destroy love wherever we find it. The devil is at work in the world trying to destroy love. And he, is at, he certainly has been at work in the modern world destroying our love for that table. Because that is the place where love is seen most concretely, most physically, most tangibly. You can't miss love there. The devil hates those that delight. And what a delight it is that Christ is to be found now in a profound way, if only under the veil of those sensible elements. That brings us to our final point, short point. Number three, our reaction. Our reaction to this God of things seen and things unseen. I think it's really telling that after Jesus' long and magnificent discourse, on the fact that he is indeed the bread of life in John chapter 6. I think it is telling that after the discourse that ends with these words, listen to how his discourse ends. It ends with this lightning bolt of a section. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. After that shocking statement, what happens at the end of John chapter 6? After that sermon, this is what happens. John six sixty six. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The disciples turned their back on him and that type of sermon. No, that's not the kind of Messiah we are interested in. You know me, I'll keep the spirituality. For after all, I'm a very spiritual person. I just don't like all that religious stuff. That sounds a little too hocus-pocusy for me. That sounds a little too hoc est corpus meum for me. I mean, can you imagine that after that discourse, they turned from him? You see, it turns out the embodied in flesh mysticism of Christianity is just too much of an affront to our sensibilities. Like, give me the enlightenment, demystified world. That's too much an affront to my scientific sensibilities. That table is too ridiculous to us when compared to our prefabricated notions of what religion should be. I mean, I can believe that there's a God out there somewhere, right? Because after all, stuff has to come from somewhere. But if you want me to believe that he reaches out and connects with my body, with my senses, that's a bridge too far. Come on. We're a people of science now. So the dwindling or the the following of Jesus is starting to dwindle. As Jesus certainly knew would happen after he preached that sermon. Right? He doesn't preach that and think, I'm going to keep everyone. No, he knows he's going to lose some people there. So they're dwindling. And Jesus turns to the 12 that are still with him. And he says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right? He is indeed the Holy One who reveals God. And here is the grand distinction between Jesus' confession and religiosity. Here's the grand distinction between Jesus' confession and whatever we make religion into. Jesus is not the fulfillment of our religious wants and needs. He's not the fulfillment of our religious desires. He is the one who reveals a God that none of us could have ever possibly imagined. I mean, after all, who in the midst, in the midst of the intense suffering of this age, who has the Nietzschean or the Freudian wish fulfillment? Now, real quick, we we talked about being an enlightenment people here. Right at the end of the enlightenment come these figures, Nietzsche and Freud. And they tell us that religion is nothing more than wish fulfillment. We desire something deep down here in our psyche, and so we project it out into the world, and that becomes our religion, right? Religion is nothing more than wish wish fulfillment. Well, I would ask, who in the midst of the suffering of this age has the Nietzschean or the Freudian wish fulfillment of saying something like this? Oh, man, if only there was a God who would become man so that we might kill him and then feast on his body and drink his blood through the mouth of faith, until he comes again so that we might be sustained. Who's wishing for that? Let me tell you, no one could or would dream that up. But God, 
the grand storyteller, the cosmic host, has reached out to us in just that way. A modern theologian, Fleming Rutledge, once wrote, she says, imagine you're invited to a dinner party, and the host comes over, and they offer you some food. You reject it, and you say, no thanks, I I don't really need any. I I had a big lunch. That would be one thing. But imagine then the host comes over to you again, outstretches their hand towards you, and beckons you just to come and sit with them. Commune with me. Be in my presence. And you say, no. Well, that's personalized the affair. right? That becomes less about oneself and one's needs and more a rejection of the host. Well, at the table, Christ, the grand host of the cosmos, reaches his hands out to you in physical elements. How can we not embrace them with dignity, with respect, with joy, with wonder, with gratitude, with thanksgiving that the word Eucharist can't even begin to plumb the depths of. The priest has brought you bread, the bread of his own body. And he, as the ultimate host, he brought out the best wine first, that we might drink his blood and be restored. Each time we come to the Lord's table, my prayer is that it may be a catalyst to spark you to live your lives in a deeper communion with the infinite, immaterial one who communes with his finite, material creatures. This place, beloved, is none other than the house of God. And that is the gate of heaven. Amen.